Uh, it was my pleasure to introduce Dr. Whitney High, who is an associate professor of dermatology and pathology at the University of Colorado. He received his medical degree from Mayo Clinic. He completed the university or completed residency at the University of Texas, where he was chief resident and completed fellowship at University of Colorado, where he remains on faculty there. Um, he has authorized in, he has authorized innumerable numerous articles and chapters and three textbook. Excuse me. Three textbooks in dermatology. Um, he also holds a law degree and advanced degree in engineering. Um, he has a certificate in tropical medicine and considered an expert in infectious disease as well as general dermatology and dermatopathology. So please welcome the underaccomplished Dr. High. Thank you. Good morning. Uh, my my name is Whitney High. That's my real name. Uh, I, I'm a man. Uh, I've always been a man. Those are questions that come up. Thank you, ma'am. Uh, I'm actually a, a dermatologist and a dermatopathologist. I practice both uh, specialties at, at the University of Colorado. I'm the vice chairman uh, of the clinical affairs at the department, so I, I see patients. I also look at a lot of slides under the microscope, and I, I got to come to your meeting last year in Dallas, and I was impressed with how big and glorious your meeting is. It's, it's a very impressive uh, setting, so thanks for having me. Uh, as somebody mentioned, I, I spent some time practicing in Peru. I have certification in tropical medicine, which is invaluable in Colorado. It's, it's really useful. Uh, but but I, I, this is my company car down in Peru. It's very, very luxurious. And so I went, worked for the Ministry of Health there in Peru, and I, I saw patients in a hospital that was dedicated to infectious disease. I was the only certified dermat dermatologist there. So I got to see a lot of crazy, weird uh, fungal illnesses, and I'm not going to present, unfortunately, I'd like to sometime, but I'm going to stick to classic cutaneous infections and not present the weird, crazy stuff. Maybe that's a, a whole other talk in and of itself. Uh, I, I do write a great deal on cutaneous infections, and actually write, in Fitzpatrick, I write the chapter on uh, treatments on medications for fungal infections, so I know a lot about the subject. There are a lot of different ways you can come into contact with dermatophytes, which are the, probably the most common species of fungal infection in dermatology. You can get it from the gym, you can get it from animals. If you wear someone else's underpants and acquire a fungal infection, you probably deserve it. Uh, but uh, that, that's another way you could uh, get a, a fungal infection. Uh, again, we're going to talk about superficial fungal infections. I'd love to talk about the crazy tropical stuff, but it doesn't really fit well into your, most people's practices. So we're going to talk about dermatophytes and non-dermatophytes. Dermatophytes use keratin as an energy substrate and non-dermatophytes use either sugar or oil as an energy substrate, uh, and that's important to understanding their behavior. Uh, again, general thoughts, there's the old phrase, you are what you eat, and you might have your own thoughts. This is probably more my philosophy uh, on, on that, but uh, people might have some of these uh, same philosophies, but it's very useful to think of you are what you eat when it comes to fungal infections because it explains clinically what you see uh, when, when you go to clinic and you see fungal infections, uh, thinking about you are what you eat kind of explains where you see fungal infections, how they present, things of that nature. Uh, so the first thing is dermatophytes. Dermatophytes use keratin as energy. In fact, they're one of the only things, uh, aside from carpet beetles, which can use keratin as an energy substrate. And so that explains where you see them. You see them all over the body because there's keratin in the stratum corneum all over the body. Um, but they usually grow in a radial fashion, making these annular rings, ringworm, if you will. And that's because they're going out further and further all the time to look for keratin. 
Uh, it's kind of like Easter Island where they went out and they, they cut down the trees and then they cut down more trees and they cut down more trees and the whole island ended up denuded of trees. The same thing's true with ringworm. It grows out and out and out and out in search of more food. So it explains what you see. We have all these fancy names for tinea infections, but they're all dermatophytes. These aren't species names or anything like that. They're, they're names describing a dermatophyte infection, tinea, at a location, capitis, scal scalp infection. So tinea capitis is, is a scalp infection, ringworm of the scalp, what, what is what lay people would call it. Tinea capitis is a good place to start at the top, uh, but it's predominantly a disease of children. Really, school-age children make up the bulk of tinea capitis infections. Uh, it can look in all manners. Sometimes it's very un unimpressive. This is called gray patch or very minimal uh, tinea capitis. Again, one thing you'd want to look for is occipital uh, lymphadenopathy. Occipital lymphadenopathy is common in a lot of different uh, head infections, but particularly tinea. Uh, it could occur with a scratch on your scalp or something like that if it got infected. But what it doesn't occur with is seborrheic dermatitis. And so the lymphadenopathy would be a clue that this probably isn't seborrheic dermatitis. Another clue is how many people are diagnosing seborrheic dermatitis in five and six-year-olds? Oh, good, good. So nobody looks silly. It doesn't happen in five or six-year-olds. Seborrheic dermatitis requires androgens, requires andronarchy, requires puberty uh, to really get the right cytokine milieu to have sebum secretion and things like that. So you don't see seborrheic dermatitis in children, but you do see uh, uh, scalp infections, tinea capitis in children quite a bit. This is black dot tinea capitis. It's called black dot because the hair, the fungus grows inside the hair, causes it to be brittle and break off at the surface, and what you're left with are these little tiny comedone-looking structures which are broken off hair follicles. That's common with, particularly with trichophyton tonsurans, which is the number one form uh, of, uh, of fungal infection of the scalp because it's an endothrix. It grows inside the hair, causes it to be brittle and break off. So when you see that sign, you kind of know not only is this tinea capitis, this is the most common form of tinea capitis, which is caused by trichophyton tonsurans. Uh, here's an inflammatory form of tinea capitis, one that engenders a lot of inflammation. And if you get a whole bunch of inflammation, then we call that a carry-on. And carry-on is just a very, very exuberant inflammatory response to tinea species on the scalp, but the important thing is that sometimes people will do a surface culture here and they'll get staph back, which isn't surprising because of all the, the serum crust and things, but then they'll treat them with amoxicillin or something like that, a primary care doctor might, and they don't realize that a fungal infection is actually what's really going on. Well, about 25% of carry-ons will result in permanent hair loss that's cosmetically debilitatory to the patient. So it's important to think of uh, a fungal infection, even if your surface culture shows staph, and that's why we as dermatologists and, and, and dermatology PAs want to teach people to, you know, kind of think of fungal infections, do hair pulls, do cultures, things like that, not just take a surface uh, swab of, of the lesion and come up with staph as your diagnosis, because you'll leave the patient with permanent hair loss. Uh, this is a, a fungal infection in the hair under the microscope, and that's what you're actually looking for, the fungus inside and surrounding the hair shaft right there. Uh, and that's, that's what it looks like to me as a dermatopathologist when I see it under the scope. Here's the fungus right here. Very, very important because it's down here where you need to pull hairs or do a, a very, very good scrub with wet gauze or with a toothbrush to inoculate your, your culture media 
because the fungus is down deep. You can't cut the hair and see it or anything like that. It's down deep inside the hair shafts themselves. Tinea barbie is just a, a fungal infection with a dermatophyte because it's called tinea of the bearded scalp or the bearded face. So you hope that it's a man. You know, it's large terminal hairs. Uh, you hope it's a man. Uh, this is an example. It's very, very common to see this problem on the neck area, particularly in areas like Texas, Oklahoma, things like that, because it's common in people that work with animals. So what they do is they, they hold the animal with one hand in their neck like this, and then they do something to the animal with their, with their other hand, and, and so they end up with a fungal infection that they acquired from animals right here on the neckline like this. This is a guy who was seen at RVA in Denver for years and was told he had facial dermatitis until I happened to be there one day as the attending. I wasn't the normal attending, I was just covering clinic. And I thought that it looked sort of annular, sort of annular right here. And so I asked the patient, I said, what do you do for a living? <coughs> and he said, I drive sheep from, from Cheyenne, Wyoming to Denver all the time. And I said, I wonder if this could be a fungus. So I, I did a, a biopsy and looked for the fungus. Here it is. And so for many years, he was treated inappropriately at our own VA at, at the University of Colorado uh, by, by our other doctors. He was treated as a dermatitis and was given steroids. And he really had a very, very poor annulus here that was suggestive of tinea barbae. So anytime you see annular eruptions on the side of the face like that, I want you to think, could this possibly be a fungal infection? Tinea facii is just a name that refers to the non-bearded uh, face, so children and women. But again, you see the kind of the annular form, and that's you are what you eat. It's, it's little dermatophytes growing out radially, looking for more food all the time. And so that's how they behave, because that is what they eat. They eat keratin. Here's another example of a woman who was sent to me. She was on prednisone for a kidney condition, and they thought she might have a nickel allergy to her eyeglasses. Total kudos to them for thinking of maybe this is related to her eyeglasses. I thought that was a, a good idea, but it looked annular to me again. And so I did a scraping and found that it was uh, KOH positive. And so I treated her just with antifungals, and all her problems resolved. So very, very common in pred people taking prednisone, slight immunosuppression from the high doses of steroids, slight elevation of blood sugars and things like that, and they end up with tinea uh, all over their body, and including tinea facii. Tinea corporis is just a name that refers to tinea infections, dermatified infections of the body. And again, we're looking for annular lesions, possibly with scale, it grows out radially, possibly with some central clearing. <coughs> and those are common signs of tinea infections of the body. You can also get Mayaki's granuloma, which is just the equivalent of a carry-on, but instead of the scalp, it's occurring on the, on the rest of the body, Mayaki's granuloma. And then you can have deep-seated fungal infections from fungi driving down the, the hair fault or the adnexal structures. We sometimes call that tinea profunda. Example of an annular lesion, again, should, should set off bells and whistles when you see that central clearing and that expanding radial growth because it's going out searching for keratin. Here's another lesion was treated uh, in Denver by a doctor for many, many, many years is dermatitis of the neck. And you can see it kind of has a weak annular form. And again, this is a fungal infection. So all I had to do was scrape the surface, treat her with a, a topical antifungal, and I eliminated the persistent dermatitis that for years had been worsened, actually, by the topical steroids. 
This is Mayaki's granuloma. You can still see a little bit of an annular lesion down here, but what, ha what has happened is the fung fungus has dived down the adnexal structures. It's gone down the hair follicles, and it creates this deep-seated uh, infection in the hair follicles. That's often seen with steroid use. So what happens is they go to a non-dermatologist or non-dermatologic specialist, and they get treated for their stasis dermatitis or something like that with triamcinolone, and that makes the fungus, fungal infection actually worse in the end and creates these deep-seated infections because of the immunosuppression by the topical steroid. So again, I, I see that often in my own practice in people that have been kind of diagnosed by a non-dermatologic professional as having stasis and they're using a steroid on the foot, on the feet where there's a lot of fungus anyway and, and then they get these deep-seated infections because of the topical steroid. Tinea cruris is a uh, groin infection with tinea, with dermatophyte species. It's almost always men. Women very rarely have tinea cruris, which is an important thing to remember. It's often seen in a group of men, like athletic teams, military barracks, penal institutions, all at the same time. And so what you see <coughs> is you see this annular expanding lesion on the thigh. Why do you see it on the thigh? We call it jock itch, right? see it on the thigh because there's the most keratin there. You are what you eat. This organism wants keratin. So it grows out onto the thick skin of the thigh. It doesn't like the, the thin skin of the scrotum. So again, just thinking about you are what you eat, you get to the right answer right here. It's growing out on this thick, food-rich surface right here, and it's sparing this very, very thin skin right here that doesn't have a lot of keratin. So that should make complete sense, uh, really. Uh, this was a person who I sent the resident in at the University of Colorado, and they came out and they said they have a decubitus ulcer. I said, really? 35-year-old man walks into clinic with a decubitus ulcer? And so I opened the door, and, and I saw this, and just from the doorway, I said, that man has dermatophyte infection. He has basically jock itch of his, of his buttock area. And, and think about it, it's a very, very warm, very, very moist area. There's a lot of friction. The skin gets very thick. There's a lot of keratin debris, a lot of food. So that's a very, very common area to see dermatophyte infections. And then lastly, tinea pettis, the number one fungal infection in humans. Uh, it's really a consequence of shoes, really, more than anything else. It's uh, warm, moist. It's a good place for, fungal, uh, uh, for fungi to grow. And so really, if we didn't wear shoes, we probably wouldn't have much tinea pettis. But I'm certainly a big fan uh, of shoes. So. Uh, they're very, very important. Um, but there's many different species that can cause fungal infection of the feet, but it's the number one fungal infection in the world. A lot of people have this. There's interdigital forms where you get this classic macerated athlete's foot appearance to the, to the foot. And then there's other forms like the moccasin-type tinea pettis, where it looks like somebody's wearing like one of those sock-style moccasins that hugs the foot right here. And if you look at the bottom of a person with moccasin tinea pettis, there's a, a chalky white hyperkeratotic appearance to the skin. More common in elderly patients, harder to treat, requires a longer course of treatment. You might have this person realistically on some manner of antifungal creams every third day or every other day for the rest of their lives. This could be a very, very persistent problem for them, particularly if they're wearing the same shoes and maintaining the same habits with regard to saunas and hot tubs and gyms and things like that. The only thing I'll say about this is sometimes you can get vesicles on the feet with tinea, and where the vesicles happen is right here in the instep area. 
And again, there's a very, very logical reason for that. The skin here is so thick that the fungus gets almost no inflammatory response. The skin here is thick enough to make a nice blister. It's thick enough to make a nice blister, but it's thin enough that the inflammatory cells can get there and actually do their job. It's the inflammatory reaction that causes the blister. So when you see blisters in tinea pedis, it's usually right here in the instep area. If you're seeing blisters somewhere else, it's probably something else. Um, but when you see bolus tinea pedis, it's usually right here in the instep area. One hand, two foot syndrome, everybody heard of that in this room, I bet. When I give this talk to non-dermatologists, nobody knows what that is and they think I'm making it up. But the NIH has spent like $70 million studying why is it one hand and two feet? $70 million, shoot, I'll, I'd do that job the rest of my life gladly for $70 million. But they've never ever proven whether it's the dominant hand or the non-dominant hand or anything like that. Um, but it definitely happens one hand and two feet. And I always put the people in the same position to take the picture. That's sort of like an execution position or something. I feel very, very weird when I'm doing it. Um, but but uh, here's one hand and two feet. One hand and two feet. Very, very real. So in derm, in derm practice, in an academic setting, when I have brand new residents and they come out and they tell me about their scaling hand, I always say, did you examine the feet? And they always say no, and I always say, back you go. So, so it's important when you have a scaling hand to always look at the feet, because more often than not, if it's one hand and both feet, you have the diagnosis right there. Tinea manum is a possibility, uh, which is a fungal infection of the palmar skin, but it's exquisitely rare. In fact, just idiopathic palmoplantar peeling is more common than tinea manum. Manum and idiopathic palmoplantar peeling is exactly that. You have a peely hand for reasons that we don't know. So, so it's very, very rare diagnosis outside of the setting of one hand, two foot syndrome. Toenail infections, it's just really, really important to remember and it's very frustrating to a lot of the women that come to my practice. Having an older, brittle, quote, ridged nail, as they complain about, is not necessarily fungal infection. As you get older, the nails actually do get more ridged and thin and brittle, and there's very little I can do for that, that outside of recommending biotin or something like that. But not all brittle, thin nails are fungal infection, even uh, though the people on TV would like us to think that's the case. Uh, you can just have old nails, you can have poor circulation, psoriasis, things like that can cause ugly nails. It's not just fungal infections. Uh, you can have dermatophyte infections, which is most common, and those respond well to our same medications that we use for tinea infections elsewhere. But you can have weird fungi grow on the hands and feet, uh, of the nails of the hands and feet. You can have weird fungus grow that should actually be, you know, forming a mushroom on a log somewhere, uh, and somehow it's gotten underneath your nail bed. And those are non-dermatophyte species, and those are probably the ones that respond very, very poorly to our antifungal medications. And those are some of the cases that aren't cleared with terbinafine and things like that. The other important problem is that if people keep the same patterns of behavior that they have before they had the fungal infection of the nails, they're gonna keep their fungal infection of the nails anyway. So those people that are using the gym, those people that are, are using the hot tub, the sauna, those people that go on hotel trips a lot. Did you know that 70% of hotel room floors you can culture fungal infections from them. So 
Uh, think about that when you're lounging around your room tonight, rolling around on the carpet. Uh, 70% of hotel room floors, you can culture fungal species off of. So if people maintain the same patterns of behavior, even if you clear the fungal nail infection temporarily, very often they'll recur. And that's why the long-term cure, the five-year cure for fungal nail infections is about 50%. Because people go back to the same patterns of behavior that, that, that's got them the fungal nail infection in the first place. There are different forms. One form to be aware of is this proximal subungual onychomycosis, which is associated with HIV infection and immunocompromised states. But the most common kind is just fungus going right underneath your nail, causing this distal subungual onychomycosis. And that's what most of us generally tend to treat. Here's a form called superficial onychomycosis, and this is just a white nail uh, with fungus growing right on the surface. It's not a common form, but you can actually make the diagnosis just by scraping the surface doing a KOH. Here's the common form, distal subungual, and fungus just goes right underneath the distal edge of the nail and sets up shop there, and this is the most common form uh, of fungal infection of the nail. Uh, and then sometimes you have pincer nail abnormalities, but the important point is you can have pincer nail abnormalities, that tinting of the nail here. You can have that just in and of itself, getting older, trauma, daily wear of shoes, all those things can lead to, to pincer nail deformities. It's not necessarily a fungal infection. We sometimes treat the fungal infection and say, gosh, I hope this solves your problem, but it doesn't necessarily solve your problem. <clears throat> this is what we call a subungual mycetoma. It's not a real mycetoma because the fungus didn't get there by uh, hematogenous dissemination, but it's basically uh, an area of fungus just creeping ever further back into the nail, and that would be a good place to take your sampling. This is proximal subungual onychomycosis, and again, when you see that, it's a sign of, of HIV or a, a, an immunocompromised state because the fungus is becoming uh, more bold and is directly confronting the immune system here when it grows in the matrix. <coughs> So, excuse me, how do you make the diagnosis? It's important to make the diagnosis correctly, obviously, before you treat any type of, of fungal infection. But you can do KOH. It's very cheap. It's very, very sensitive. If you know what you're doing, very, very good way to make the diagnosis. Culture is actually less sensitive than KOH examination. And then for nails, uh, one, one really very, very, very good test is just clipping a part of the, the affected nail and sending it to your dermatopathologist. And in fact, that had very, very high sensitivity above that of culture in all the studies. There's one study in 2003, but in repeated studies, so long as you do one thing, and we'll talk more about this tomorrow in my Dermpath lecture, but if you put crap into the Dermpath system, you get crap out of the Dermpath system. Does that make sense? So if you hand the scissors to your MA, and especially your new P MA, and you say, go clip that nail, I want to see if they have fungal infection. And they go into the room and they timidly take the best looking part of the nail because it was the easiest part to clip off. And they, they barely clip it off and they send it to the dermatopathologist. They have a bad sample to begin with. So it shouldn't be su surprising that you get a bad result out of the system. So if you're going to do a clipping, you actually have to go in and clip the ugly, huge, yucky, heaped up, thick, gross part of the nail so that you get a good sample, so that you get a good result out of the system in the end. So, so this is a very, very sensitive technique, 
as long as you put a good sample into the system, you get a good result out. But if you put a bad sample into the system, and this can go dramatically wrong in melanocytic lesions and things like that, if you put a bad sample into the system, you get a bad result out. Uh, looks like that slide appears twice. With KOH, again, growing out radially, you always want to go ahead and uh, culture or scrape the edge of the lesion because, again, you are what you eat. You're eating keratin, you're growing out in search of keratin, you're becoming this radial ringworm type of growth. And so if you want to optimize the chance of seeing the fungus, it's out here on the frontier going for new food. And then it's clearing in the center portion. So if you did a punch biopsy here, or you did a scraping here, the odds of seeing the fungus would be a lot less than if you go out to the new frontier where it's going out in search of food and you biopsy or scrape right here. Uh, here's what you should see on a good KOH. I always like doing the KOHs with the brand new uh, uh, interns or, or first-year dermatology residents or medical students because they put any skin sample down on the microscope and they say, ah, there's fungus here. It explains it all. And so for the first day or two of residency every year, we have like 50 fungal infections. But what, what you see here is actually just the keratinocyte boundaries right here. These are just normal squames, little cells that have been separated from the stratum corneum. And you see they're very faint, weak boundaries. Everybody see the, fake, weak, weak, the faint, weak boundaries of the cells there? Everybody see the, the faint, weak boundaries of the cells? But then you see these more greenish, blackish looking structures. And how I always describe them to the new interns and things is I say, look for something that's disrespecting the cell boundaries. It's crossing them. It's, it's just not respecting the cell boundaries at all. And everybody see the structures here that are disrespecting the cell boundaries and their branch structures? That's actually the hyphae. That's actually a positive KOH. And, and the reason it looks a tiny bit greenish colored is because I put this DMSO with chlorazole E on the slide, and so it turns the fungus just a slightish green color. So that's a positive KOH. Just seeing this alone, which is what all the first-year dermatology residents go for, this is just the normal boundaries of skin cells. This is the fungus right here. <coughs> you can culture. Again, culture isn't as sensitive as you think, particularly, and culture, it's probably true as well. If you put garbage into the system, you get garbage out of the system. So with like the, the tinea capitis infections we talked about, you saw how deep-seated the fungal infection was. So it's important to take a wet piece of gauze and rub the scalp real aggressively and then inoculate your agar. Or, or to take a toothbrush and rub the scalp real aggressively and then inoculate the agar. Or take even a hair pull where you grab 10 or 12 hairs with a hemostat and you pull them out forcefully. And then you stab it into the agar. Those are important methods because it'll increase your sensitivity. You put good you put a good sample into the system, you get a good sample out. Uh, that's very, very important. But culture isn't as sensitive as you think. This is dermatophyte test media. It's kind of cool. It has phenothalene in it. it, it you, you can buy it at like www.delasco.com. I don't have any interest in any of this stuff. But you can, you can buy it. And what it does is if it's a dermatophyte, which is, again, a type of fungus that uses keratin as an energy substrate, if it's a dermatophyte, it will turn the, uh, the uh, media red. 
If it's a non-dermatophyte, meaning it's probably a contaminant, it probably just floated into the bottle or anything else while you had it open. If it's a contaminant, it won't turn the media red. And so we actually used to do these on a desk. We just grew them on a desk. They don't require special cold, uh, growing conditions or anything like that. We used to just grow these on, on a, a desk in, in the chief resident's office at the University of Texas. And if it turned red, it was a dermatophyte. If it didn't turn red, it probably wasn't a dermatophyte. It's pretty neat stuff. It's not super sophisticated, but it's kind of neat. You can do a biopsy. Again, I'm looking at biopsies every day thinking, could this possibly be a fungal infection? Here you see fungus growing down the hair shaft. This is tinea capitis. Here's a nail plate. I bet you guys kind of wondered, well, what does a nail plate look like under the microscope? This is what it looks like. It's this hard, compacted keratin right here. And in between the lamellations of the keratin, you see the purple staining fungus. So I put a special stain on this called periodic acid shift, or PAS. And what you see is you see the fungus accentuated between the lamellations of the nail plate. That's actually a positive result. So if I see it, I tell you it's positive. If I don't see it, I tell you it's negative. <clears throat> this is, um, could be dermatitis. Could be dermatitis. You have the skin. You have the epidermis here in purple. You have the dermis here in pink. You have blood vessels with inflammatory cells surrounding them. And then you have this crusted material. So clinically, this looks scaly. And I can tell it looks scaly because you have this crusted material up here on the surface of the skin. But if you look real closely in that area, these are fungi. This is the dermatophytes right here. And they're up in the stratum corneum where they should be. They're eating keratin. You are what you eat. So they're up here in the stratum corneum eating keratin. And this is the same thing, the same type of thing we saw in the nail plate just a minute ago, these hyphae, or these elongated tubular forms of fungus right here. So when I see that, I can just tell the doctor that uh, they have a fungal infection going on. Sometimes they're fewer in number and they're harder to see, and we do special stains. So if you're reading your dermatopathology report and you see either PAS, which we already talked about, or GMS, which is Gomori's methanamine silver stain, uh, it accentuates the fungal elements and makes them turn black. And so this is the normal skin, this is the normal stratum corneum, and then these black structures are the fungi. So those are techniques that your dermatopathologist can do for you to look for fungal infections. So how do you treat fungal infections? We're perfectly right on time, halfway through here. So how do you treat fungal infections? You treat fungal infections, dermatophyte infections, uh, uh, in a certain way because of what it is. This is characteristics of all fungi. Uh, fungi don't make their own food. They derive it from something else, like dermatophytes derive energy from keratin. Candida uses sugar, and pterosporum uses sebum. Um, but they have these walls, these cell walls derived of chitin. And then they have this weird cell membrane. The cell membrane in humans has cholesterol in it, cholesterol. The cell membrane in fungi has something called ergosterol. So early scientists said, well, hey, hey you have this cell membrane which contains cholesterol in humans, but ergosterol in fungi. I wonder if we can exploit that difference. And so that's exactly what all medications that you prescribe for every single day do. They exploit the difference between ergosterol synthesis and cholesterol synthesis. And so one medication that does that is the Pauline class of medications. And what Paulines do is they bind to ergosterol. Here's the cell membrane. The yellow pieces are, are, are ergosterol right here. The Paulines bind to these ergosterol sites, 
and they open the cell up and the cell leaks important minerals like calcium and magnesium and so sodium and potassium and so it becomes toxic to the cell and the cell dies. Doesn't happen to human cells because human cells don't have ergosterol. They have cholesterol, so it's exploiting the difference there. And so the most common one that we, we use every single day is nystatin. So nystatin comes in, it binds to these ergosterol sites in the cell membrane, and it causes the cell to leak fluid. That's how nystatin works. What's the most important thing I could tell you about nystatin? Works great for what? Yeast. What does it do for dermatophytes? Zilch, zero, zip. It's like not doing anything at all. So, so where I see this mostly is when I lecture to primary care physicians, which I do a lot. Uh, when I lecture to primary care physicians, they're prescribing nystatin all over the place, particularly triamcinolone nystatin, without knowing what they're treating, and so they're getting zero, zero, zero effects. So, so I'm hereby deputizing all of you to go out into your community back home and tell people nystatin does zilch if it's a dermatophyte. Very, very good if it's candida, but does zilch if it's a dermatophyte. Another form of medication is the imidazoles and triazoles. So imidazoles are a huge class of medications. Clotrimazole is probably the oldest one. It's probably 50 years old, twice as old as, as some of the people in this room. So, so uh, imidazoles are a very, very old class of medications. Uh, clotrimazole, myconazole, all the ones that end in zol, basically are for the most part either imidazoles or, or the newer triazoles, but they inhibit an enzyme called 14-alpha-dimethylase, which is an enzyme that's critical to making ergosterol. So again, we're exploiting the difference between ergosterol required by fungi and cholesterol required by humans. So we're, we're prohibiting the cell from making uh, ergosterol. And so it's a fungistatic drug. It doesn't immediately kill the cell, but it prohibits the cell from going forward and replicating and having a family, et cetera. And basically, it ends the fungal infection by inhibiting its growth. Uh, and so it's very, very important. The only weird thing is that, that uh, the only thing weird to remember is when you take the oral form, it can sometimes cause liver disease. And that's why we actually don't prescribe long courses of ketoconazole by mouth anymore or anything like that. Then the other quirky thing is that, that while most topical forms have very, very low absorption, and you don't have to worry about a lot of drug interactions when you're using clotrimazole cream, let's say, there are a few quirky properties to some of the agents, like sulconazole has like 7 or 8% absorption, which is 7 or 8-fold uh, more than the average imidazole. So there's some quirky properties, but in the end, they all work pretty well, and you don't really have to worry about uh, any real crazy things with these drugs. The last class is allylamines and benzylamines. Allylamines are like terbenafin is an allylamine, and benzylamines uh, are a related form. Butenafine is the, the equivalent of benzylamines. Uh, they, they both block ergosterol synthesis as well, so they're exploiting that same difference, but they inhibit a different enzyme called squalene epoxidase. And it's fungicidal, so this actually actively kills the yeast, or the, the hyphae. It kills the fungus directly. Instead of being static, it's sidal. And so some people find that to be a bit of a benefit, that it actually actively kills fungus. Um, but it, it, it kills the fungus because squalene, which is acted upon by this enzyme, accumulates within the cell. But again, uh, th there are very quirky liver reactions seen on, on occasion with allylamines and benzylamines when you take them by mouth. Um, but for the most part, they're tolerated pretty well. 
There are other agents like griseovulvin. It's been around almost 60 years. It inhibits the microtubule spindle complex. We use it in kids mostly because it's, we know it's safe. We've been using it for 50 years. It's safe. <coughs> it has a slow onset. You have a prolonged course. How many people treat their, their kids with uh, capitis, tinny capitis? They treat them for like four, six, eight weeks sometimes if you don't get a good culture result. So it has this slow onset of action, and its absorption is increased by fatty meals, which kids love. So you say, you know, eat this with French fries or ice cream, and they're, they're just delighted uh, that the doctor told them to eat ice cream and, and uh, French fries. But uh, fatty meals increase the absorption of griseovulvin, and it's one thing to be aware of. The, the other thing, another agent is cyclopyroxolamine. Uh, that, that's a, an agent that actually chelates metals, like we talked about, calcium, magnesium, potassium. It chelates metals and keeps the cell from using them. And so when the cell isn't able to use them, the cell dies. And so that's how cyclopyroxolamine works. And then the last one is plain old selsum blue, selenium sulfide. Believe it or not, selenium sulfide in head and so shoulders, which is zinc pyrothione, those two uh, agents, we actually don't know a lot about how they work. We know they kill fungus, but the, the details about exactly how they kill the fungus are more vague. And in fact, some of them are probably proprietary. I would bet that, that Procter & Gamble knows, and I would bet that whoever manufactures uh, cells in blue knows, but they actually don't share a lot of that information. It's proprietary. But it, we definitely know that it has antimitotic effects, a lot like griseovulvin. It prevents the cell from dividing. But a lot of the other details about exactly how selenium sulfide works aren't really known with certainty. So treating different diseases that we've talked about so far, tinea capitis, griseovulvin is still probably the drug of choice, but you, you have that slow onset of action, so you have to use the medication for a long time. It's still probably preferred by a lot of doctors because it, we know it to be safe, and you have to be careful about what you give kids. And so it's still the preferred agent, if you look at the American Academy of Pediatrics or the American Academy of Dermatology, it's still the preferred agent. But some people will treat, uh, more people every year probably, will treat kids with terbinafen because you can treat them with a lot shorter course, two to four weeks of terbinafen. Or sometimes people use fluconazole in children. Or even itraconazole, if you open the capsules, you divide, you, you let the little granules fall into applesauce or something like that, you can give itraconazole. So there are other choices it just so happens that griseovulvin is cheap, it's, it's long proven, and it's safe, and so we use a lot of it for tinea capitis. The other thing we immediately do usually is we usually give selenium sulfide or ketoconazole to just knock the number of organisms down on the scalp and make a person less infectious immediately. And that leads to the last question, which is when can you return to school? Immediately upon commencing treatment. That's the, the opinion of both the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Academy of Dermatology. You don't have to keep a person out of school for even a day for tinea capitis. You start them on treatment, they go back to school immediately, and you, you'd be well within the standard of care to do that. That's the, the opinion of both the AAP and the AAD, is you don't keep somebody out of school for tinea capitis. Tinea barbie, facia, and corporis, which is the bearded face, the face, and the body. Uh, you always want to ask yourself two questions. How much body surface area is involved? And, and are terminal hairs present? So in me, there's a lot of terminal hairs all over. So, excuse me. Uh, there's a lot of terminal hairs all over. So that poses a problem for me if I get a fungal infection because what happens? The fungus creeps down the terminal hair and becomes deep set. So in a person with a lot of terminal hairs on the body surface, 
that you're going to be you're going to have a lower threshold for treating them with oral medications to get medicine to the point where the fungal infection is at. If there's a large body surface area involved, it's probably not practical to give somebody a couple tubes of medicine and say put this all over your body a couple times a day. So if there's a large body surface area involved or if terminal hairs are present, you're probably going to want to use oral medications instead of topical medications. This is Lotrazone. Uh, I, I won't do it this way because I don't want to embarrass anyone, but when I give lectures to other people, well, let me, let me just explain it visually. This is a guy who's been treated for many, many, many years for a rash on his back with Lotrazone, and this is my opinion of Lotrazone. <laughs> so he's been treated for years. He's been treated with this medicine. So Lotrazone, is, it's not even a branded medicine anymore. It's a generic now, but it's betamethasone and clotrimazole blended together. Seems like a good idea, right? You've got an antifungal, you've got an anti-inflammatory. Uh, it seems like a good idea. The anti-inflammatory cools down the itching, the inflammatory reaction. The problem is that when they made the medicine, the company only held the patent to betamethasone. So it was a business decision. We'll go ahead and use clotrimazole and betamethasone. What's the problem with betamethasone? Super potent. It's one of our most potent topical steroids. If it was, if it was clotrimazole plus hydrocortisone or clotrimazole plus triamcinolone even, we probably wouldn't have the same problem. But it's betamethasone, which is very, very, very potent. It's, it immunosuppresses you locally. So you're giving an antifungal, but you're also immunosuppressing the person. And so that's why this person had had this persistent eruption for years and years and years, because he just didn't have enough oomph to clear the infection. And that's the problem with Lotrazone. So if you actually look at Lotrazone uh, versus, uh, versus Naftin, let's say, they have a lower cure rate, a much higher relapse rate, six-fold higher relapse rate, and then a much higher incidence of local side effects because of the betamethasone. So it's the betamethasone that's the problem. So you can have adverse effects like stria, hirsutism, even uh, growth retardation if you use enough topical steroids. So they've had them re revise the inside product instructions for Lotrazone on many, many, many occasions. The FDA has forced them to change the indications. But I'm not a big fan of Lotrazone. If I actually need an anti-inflammatory uh, topical steroid and a fungus, I'll usually just give the person two prescriptions rather than give them the betamethasone, which is just overkill. Uh, uh, for most situations. And then tinea cruris, remember foot infections, uh, athlete's foot is the number one fungal infection in the whole world. It's a consequence of shoes. So one thing you can do is just change your patterns of behavior, change your socks more frequently, change your shoes, air your shoes out, use foot powders. Those are all important things. Um, uh, oh, well, shoot, I'm talking about tinea cruris, excuse me. <laughs> you guys can speak up faster. I, I was on to tinea pettis. So tinea cruris, the important thing about tinea cruris is it's a groin infection. It's more common in men, very, very unusual in women. But, but what do men also suffer from? Guilty penis phenomenon, right? So guilty penis phenomenon is a real thing that I saw all the time when I worked at the STD clinic. And, and, uh, it, it, so, so somebody does something they wish they hadn't done, and, and then they, they're sure they have some kind of infection as God's retribution to them. And so they begin using all kinds of different products in the, in the, in the groin area. They start using 
really powerful antifungals. They maybe use bleach baths. They use gold bond powder. They use, and they come in, and there's just so many medications down there, I can't even see my way uh, through, through the anatomy. So, so it's, it's real. Well, it turns out that a lot of those substances are very, very, very irritating, like myconazole, mycostat and things like that. Myconazole is very, very, very irritating. So sometimes I can't figure out, as a dermatologist, I'll just admit it, I can't figure out how much of this is irritation and dermatitis, irritant dermatitis, and how much of this is an actual problem. So the only way around that is, is you know, this isn't an endorsement. I don't have any uh, stock in this company or anything like that. But zulconazole is probably the mildest of all the topical uh, antifungals you can use in the groin area. So, so just one thing to be aware of is if I have somebody where I wonder, is this irritant, blah, 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 is, could it possibly be a fungal infection? I'll often use sulconazole only because it's less irritating. And so then I don't have to worry about, well, how much of this is he using? How aggressive is he using it? You know, get all kinds of people that are scrubbing and doing all kinds of crazy things to try to cure their infections and things like that. Sulconazole is a little bit more mild and is probably my preferred agent in the groin area, but uh, I don't even know who makes it now. It's, I think it Rambaxi does, but I don't have any interest in it. I'm just telling you it's the mildest in the groin area uh, because you don't want to uh, have this uh, phenomenon going on. Now we're to foot infections. So the important thing about foot infections is you want to modify all those patterns of behavior that led to the foot infection in the first place. Um, but the most important thing is, is probably, you know, that you have so many over-the-counter agents for athlete's foot now. People go and they, they buy one of those agents and they use it for about three or four days and they feel better and then they stop. But they kept all the same patterns of behavior, right? And so then they get the fungus, fungal infection right back and nothing's solved. So the important thing is to educate people that they have to keep treating even beyond uh, the point w in which they feel less pruritus and less irritation and things in that area. They need to keep treating. Probably I have my patients treat twice a day for three weeks. Um, but two weeks is adequate with some medications. But they need to really keep going beyond the point in which the itch has disappeared to really eradicate the fungus. And it's really, really important for them to modify their, their patterns of behavior uh, as well. Uh, with regard to which is the best agent, I really don't have a lot of stock in any of these. I, I don't really much care which one you use because the cure rate is pretty similar between them. You know, if you want to use terbinafine, which is an alilamine, that's fine. If you want to use clotrimazole, which has been around for 50 or 60 years, for me, that's also fine. There aren't a huge problem with, there isn't a huge problem with resistance or anything like that. But again, I think more importantly, is to treat adequately for an adequate period of time. And if you'll use the medicine, I'm, I'm more concerned with will you use it and will you follow up rather than will you use my particular medicine? Because I think a lot of them are very, very equivalent in their performance. Here's Lotrazone, though. Lotrazone is not equivalent in its performance. Again, I'm not a big fan uh, of, of that particular combination of medicines. Treating uh, nail fungus, uh, terbinafine has emerged as the, the number one agent. It's now on the $4 Walmart plan, so you can treat a person for 12 bucks in the end. It, it's, it's now much, much, much more affordable. There used to be these huge wars between terbinafine and intraconazole. If you've been in medicine long enough, you used to get some pretty good dinner talks and things out of this battle when, it, when the medicine cost $1,200. But now that it costs 12 bucks, you don't see too many battles 
anymore. Terbenafin is probably the preferred agent. Uh, the only important thing about terbenafin is there are more than a handful of reports of drug-induced lupus caused by terbenafin used for toenail infections. So, so the only thing that I do in my practice that's different is I ask people, do they have photosensitivity, do they have a strong personal history of lupus, or do they have a strong family history of lupus? Because there are reports of people getting placed on terbenafin for something as harmless and un as unimportant as nail fungus, which have, been, uh, which have had uh, uh, connective tissue disease unmasked or caused by the medication, and actually the connective tissue disease persisted beyond the medication. It's nice when you take the drug away and the drug-induced lupus goes away, but in a few people, they've taken the drug away and the connective tissue disease has stayed. Perhaps they just got connective tissue disease anyway, we'll never know. But so I always ask the patients, do you have photosensitivity, do you have a strong personal history of lupus, do you have a strong family history of lupus, before I just treat their innocuous nail disease uh, with terbenafin. Onychomycosis, there's topical uh, treatments. In, the, in Europe, there's the amrolafine, which is this fancy uh, uh, lacquer that's colored. You can buy like, you know, hot pink and green and all kinds of different colors. Uh, probably a lot of women don't want green. That was probably a bad thing to say, but you can buy hot pink and red and all those different colors. Um, but in the United States, you only have one choice, this, this clear lacquer, cyclopyroxolamine. The results, I don't think, are fantastic. The cure rates are certainly much, much lower than oral medications, but it does give you an agent to give to people that have hepatitis C or have a whole bunch of drug interactions or something like that and really feel like they need to do something for the nail disease. You have something to offer them. It's not perfect, but you have something to offer them. The last few things, uh, this is a question I always get is, what about VIX? Uh, VIX probably does work. There's some substances in VIX that are, are uh, you know, there, there's some substances that have antifungal properties, but in the only study I could find, and it's in a nurse practitioner journal from Australia, it's like seven patients, so it's not a real, real prominent journal, it's not a real large number of patients. Uh, they, they had to treat people for six months to a year, so it certainly isn't the quick VIX by any means. But it might possibly work, but now you have terbenafin, which is on the $4 drug uh, plan of most uh, pharmacy, so it's less of an issue. It's something you could possibly try. It doesn't have a lot of downsides to it, but it doesn't have a whole lot of upsides either. The last thing is non-dermatophyte infections. I can't say a lot about them because of time, but I'll just show you one thing. Again, you are what you eat. What's the, what's the thinnest skin on a man's body? The scrotum is actually the thinnest skin. It's slightly thinner than the eyelid. So, so why do candida infections set up shop on the scrotum? Because they eat sugar, okay? Dermatophytes eat keratin, they grow out onto the thigh where there's a whole bunch of keratin. Candida infections eat sugar, and so they want to go to the thinnest skin and drive straight down and imbibe that sugary interstitial fluid between cells. And so that's why candida infections set up shop on the scrotum. Very, very common to see them on the scrotum. And they're that bright, beefy red because they're going straight down and they're encountering the body's immune system and they're getting a lot of inflammation as a result. So again, you are what you eat makes complete sense with what you see clinically. Bright, beefy red, a lot of satellite pustules driving straight down into the thinnest skin to drink the sugary fluid between cells. Anybody seen Erosio interdigitalis blastomycetica? It's awesome. Usually involves the two 
uh, the, this space between the, the fingers because it's the longest web space. And all you have to do is tell that person to air out that space and their, their candida infection will grow away, go away. The other last thing I'll, I'll cover is Malassezia infections. Pterosporum is a, a yeast that's everywhere. It's floating in this room right now. It's on you. It's on you. It's on you. It's everywhere. It's on this podium. So pterosporum's everywhere, but certain people, particularly as they get older, have this aberrant reaction to pterosporum that leads to seborrheic dermatitis, we think. But other people can get tinea versicolor, which is better called pterosporum versicolor. Why is it better to call it pterosporum versicolor? Pteriasis versicolor is better because it tells you the, the species is not a tinea species. It's not a dermatophyte. So what does pteriasis, what does pterosporum uh, eat? It eats oil. So where do you see seborrheic dermatitis? The oily areas of the body. How many people are diagnosing seborrheic dermatitis on the left hand? If you are, you're probably wrong. So seborrheic dermatitis is an oily, it's a disease that requires oil. So same thing's true with pteriasis versicolor. It involves the areas of the skin that have a lot of oil in them. The, the middle of the chest, the, the upper back, the back of the neck. Those are places you see pteriasis versicolor because the, the species eats oil. Sometimes it's fawn colored like this. So this man thought that he had an infection going on right here. This is actually his only normal skin. The whole rest of his body is involved by, by extensive pteriasis versicolor. That's unusual. Pteriasis folliculitis. What happens when you, you think that the patient has folliculitis, but you've tried doxycycline, you've tried all these other uh, antibiotics, nothing seems to help. That's a situation where you need to think about pterosporum folliculitis. And it's just yeast, pterosporum yeast, that have dove down the hair follicle and in this particular person are causing this folliculitis. But it's not treated with antibiotics very well because it's not a bacterial infection. It's a fungal infection. And it's something you need to think about in those people that look like they have folliculitis, but yet none of my folliculitis treatments work right. That's pterosporum folliculitis more likely than not. And you diagnose tinea versicolor either by scratching the surface with a razor blade or by stretching. Sometimes I go up and I stretch the skin. And so that's what I'm doing here. I'm just taking my two fingers and I even put gloves on so that I could use this in a talk and be following you know, uh, good clinical practices. But I don't normally wear gloves. So I, I stretch the skin right here and I see that there's this peripheral scale. So if you, if you stretch kind of a fawn colored plaque and it accentuates the scale, more likely than not, that's probably tinea versicolor. That's extremely suggestive because the word pteriasis means bran-like scale. And that's what you see when you stretch those plaques. You see this bran-like scale, B-R-A-N-like scale at the periphery of the, the lesion. This is what you see if you tape strip the skin. So you put a piece of tape on the skin, you pull it off, put it on a, a, a microscope slide, you put a drop of toluene blue and you just lay the tape over it. And you see the spaghetti and meatballs of tinea versicolor. So here's the, or pteriasis versicolor also. You see the, the meatballs, which are the yeast forms, and then the spaghetti is the short hyphae right here. And that's diagnostic of pteriasis versicolor or tinea versicolor. This is what you also might see if you do a KOH scraping. You see the meatballs here. These are the meatballs. And then you see the short hyphae. Notice these aren't the very, 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 very long hyphae, which went practically across the entire slide when I showed you the dermatophytes. These are very, very short hyphae. That's, pteris, that's uh, pterosporum uh, malassezia species, uh, pterosporum species yeast.
and hyphae. So how do you treat it? Treat it with imidazole creams. Again, the good thing about imidazoles as opposed to nystatin is imidazoles cover, uh, they cover uh, pterosporum, they cover candida, they cover dermatophytes. Same thing's true with alilamines mostly. They, they cover a broad, broad spectrum of disease. You can also use cyclopyroxolamine. We talked about that drug. It chelates metals. You can use selenium sulfide. The only thing I ever see that's a problem, and I'm sure none of you guys have this problem, but when I lecture to primary care doctors, is they get the, the, the instructions, they get the instructions confused for pityriasis versicolor and scabies. They get the instructions confused, and they tell the person, put selenium sulfide on your whole body from the neck down, go to sleep, wake up in the morning, wash it off. That, if you do that with Celsin Blue, you will be very, very, very sorry you did. Okay, so in Celsin Blue, it's like leave it on 20 minutes tops and wash it off because it's very, very irritating to the skin in that, in that uh, straight uh, dose if you just pour it straight out of the body onto the skin. So make sure you don't uh, confuse the two. And then one uh, treatment that's published fairly recently, and it's kind of nice for those people that get recurrent episodes of pityriasis versicolor, or they get recurrent episodes of pityrosporum folliculitis, and they just can't ever seem to get rid of it, and it really bothers them. This is usually women that tend to wear, you know, want, want to wear clothing that they, they can't with their uh, pityriasis versicolor, is you give them 100 milligrams of, of itraconazole twice a day for seven days, and then the first two days of each month, the first two days of each month, or when they pay the electric bill, or whatever system you want to make. Um, but that, that's been published, it was actually published in a Stanford paper as not only curing the disease, but also maintaining the remission much, much longer. The other thing you can do is you can do ketoconazole, where you give them two tablets and you have them go exercise and get sweaty, leave the sweat on the skin, wash it off in the morning. Uh, you can do that as well. But this is a kind of nice system. I've only used it rarely. It's like a nuclear bomb for pityriasis or pityrosporum, but it works nicely when, for those rare patients that just have very, very severe disease or have very, very debilitating prolonged disease. It's kind of a nice option. So this is uh, the last case. It's an eight-year-old girl who was sent to me, the expert in fungal diseases. You know, I'm the, the, the regional expert in fungal diseases. Uh, she was a Hispanic woman. I, I, I talked to her mother and her in Spanish, and they were concerned. They had been sent for the doctor for this recalcitrant ringworm. No matter what they did, this ringworm kept coming back uh, on the face. And so I, I talked to the little girl a little bit. Uh, it is annular. There was kind of some central clearing in some of the lesions. It had failed all these topical medications and things. Uh, and so I talked to the little girl a little bit more, and she said, well, you know what I really like to do? So I like to take those little eraser things on the top of pencils. I like to squeeze them at school and put them on my face and chase the other kids around the room. And then the suction was, was leading to these uh, uh, recalcitrant, intractable fungal infections. So not everything that's annular is fungus. Sometimes there's a simpler explanation. And me just speaking a little bit of Spanish uh, and, the, and the girl trusting me a little bit was invaluable in diagnosing this recalcitrant fungal infection. Uh, this is Peru. Uh, this is the cafeteria right here. Do you guys know who these guys are? This is Peru, 6,000 miles away. These are drug reps at, hanging out at the cafeteria. So no matter where you go in the world, there's, there are people waiting to detail you, for sure. All right? Thanks very much for your time. Oh, questions, excuse me. I thought there might be a central question time, excuse me. Go ahead, sir. 
you know, there's a lot of um, media coverage about this um, laser treatment to treat sure. male fungus. Could you comment on that? Please? Yeah, the, the laser definitely works. Um, the the, the uh, toenail fungus laser is what he's referring to. You know, I forget what the trade name of it is, but it's just a fungus that uh, the, the studies were done down by, uh, down in, uh, uh, they were done down in Alabama by a woman named Bonnie Aluski did a lot of studies, but uh, it's a laser that targets the fungus through the nail plate so they don't have to debris the nail plate or anything else, but it, it through th selective thermolysis, it just vaporizes the fungus and doesn't harm uh, the, the tissue surrounding it. There's no doubt it works. Uh, it's not a problem. Uh, really, there aren't a whole lot of downsides as long as the laser operator knows what he's doing and doesn't use too much energy. Um, but you have to use a considerable amount of energy because you have to, to go through all the way through the nail plate. But it definitely works. Um, the only caveat I would say is that my, while it might have faster results for appearance, again, what, what's the central problem with toenail fungus? Yeah, if you go back to the same, same methods that you got the fungal infection in the first place, you go back to the same clubs, the same shoes, the same everything, it probably isn't a very lasting cure, and it's now separated you from several hundred dollars of your own money. That's probably the biggest downside to laser. No doubt it works. So it's expensive. Uh, a lot of people are probably running it uh, who don't have a lot of experience with lasers, and that's probably bad. But the worst thing, I think, is if they don't counsel you on how to avoid fungus in the future, what have you really accomplished? Couple questions. Sure. Uh, can you comment on uh, wrestlers returning back to competition uh, when you treat fungus? And number two, uh, your opinion on uh, use of keratolytics and or urea in addition to topical antifungals? Yeah, so uh, he's talking about like, uh, uh, he's talking about like dermatophyte infections of wrestlers where you get this uh, gladiatorium, gladiatorum type of tinny gladiatorium where you have this fungal infection in wrestlers, how long should you stay away? There isn't a perfect answer. There isn't like one standard of care. With tinny capitis, we say go back to school immediately, but you're not gonna be directly in contact with, with other people. Certainly, you know, the course of treatment with, with an oral agent like terbenafin or, or itraconazole is two-week course. Uh, so you probably become uninfectious after several days. So in my patients, I say wait about three to five days and go back to competition because you're infectious uh, your, your degree of infectiousness drops rapidly. The other thing you could do to augment that is you could also use topical medicines. As I pointed out in, in scalp infections, topical medications don't cure the infection, but they drop the infectious nature of the, of the patient. So I also have those people immediately start using Selsun Blue or Ketoconazole or, or some kind of topical cream or something. Um, but I think three to five days is totally adequate. I've recently seen several kids, like two to five, six years of age, with nail clip proven onychomycosis, and uh -huh. I'm wondering what the treatment um, is, the best recommended treatment for that for a young child um, in the toenail or the fingernails. Sure. So, so the only thing about children, and uh, the question is about children and fungal infections of the nail, that happens sometimes. Sometimes it's a secondary infection because they have some other habit like thumb sucking or, or something like that. So you need to be a little bit careful that you know what you're treating. Your dermatopathologist might help you out by saying, are you treating a yeast infection? Or are you treating a dermatophyte infection? Because uh, yeast infections would, would, would bring up different medications. So if it's a yeast infection, I particularly like to use fluconazole. And you can use fluconazole even once weekly for a prolonged course of up to 10 weeks. So it's a once a week medication. 
um, but it kills yeast, and you have to do a longer treatment course. So that's why I like it in kids. It's, it's a once-a-week medication. You can kind of grind it up and slip it in applesauce or something like that, and it's not a big deal. So that's if it's a yeast, which is very common with thumb-sucking behaviors and things like that. If it's true dermatophyte, then I think your options are terbenafen at a reduced dose. You can look online. There's a reduced dose uh, for people less than 20 kilograms. Uh, that, that's one thing you can do. You can certainly do griseovulvin, but again, your course of treatment is going to be much longer with griseovulvin, but it's going to be much safer because there's 50 or 60 years of data. So if you're not, not feeling like doing something on the fringes of dermatology, you can go with griseovulvin, but your course of treatment is going to be longer. I don't think that there's much hope for any kind of topical medication in that situation. Can I just ask with the terbinafen and, and the griseofulvin, if, if you're using that, do you do lab evaluation for liver function on those kids? I'm sorry, you're do you, do you do the routine lab evaliation? Lab analysis, for yes. yes. So we, we do a, a laboratory studies at the beginning of the course, and we usually do lab, we'll usually repeat laboratory studies every month at the University of Colorado. What's your favorite topical antifungal for children? Because most are not indicated for use in children. Yeah, so, so the, the interesting thing is actually, I write that chapter for Fitzpatrick, uh, which is Dermatology and General Medicine, which is the original kind of text uh, along with Bologna. So, so I write that chapter. In truth, all those medications are very, very, very similar. They don't have a lot of amazing differences, no matter what the drug companies want to tell you. The, the topical medications are, all work pretty well. So, so usually, depending upon whether they're the Colorado Indigent Care Program, which we call CICP, then I probably just use clotrimazole. I kind of tend to stay away from myconazole because it's irritating, like I said. But clotrimazole I usually use in very, very uh, financially strapped uh, uh, situations. I think that's a good choice. Terbenafen's uh, a good choice. The absorption of all those agents is less than 1%. Uh, with the exception of sulconazole, which I pointed out is, has a very quirky absorption. So no matter what people say, if you, get, if you start to get a, a, in trouble, you know, I, I direct you to that chapter. There's almost no absorption with those agents, so you're not going to have any kind of crazy systemic reactions to most of those medications because the medication's not going anywhere. So I just pick an agent that's affordable, that's on their health plan. I don't have one agent that I use in any particular situation with the exception of the groin and sulconazole. Uh, so I, I consider those all to be fairly equivalent. I've had many adult female patients who always wear toenail polish. When they take their polish off, they have white spots. Looks like a white superficial onychomycosis, but their scrapings are negative. Uh -huh. Any your experience on that with polish? Um, all I can think of is if, if you know, white superficial onychomycosis, it's, it's exactly, exactly what it's named. So if you do a KOH scraping on that, you should immediately see the fungus. So that's clearly not what it is. The only other thing I would say is that trauma, you see this a lot in people that get manicures and pedicures. You see a lot of those white spots, and they're caused by minor microtrauma to the nail bed that, become, that, that causes the nail plate to get a little bit disherent to the nail bed. And so the result is that little white spot. So, I see that mostly in patients that get a lot of manicures and pedicures, and they're kind of, you know, they're kind of, I don't know what you do. I've never had a manicure or pedicure, but I guess you probably do something else while this lady's working on you. you, know, you and maybe you're not aware of the fact that she goes, oh, ow, whoops, oh, you know, sorry. So I, I think most of those little spots are caused by microtrauma uh, 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 grooming, I believe. Okay, basic question, but um, in our office, we don't have AR plates for cultures of the scalp. Okay. Um, I understand like rubbing with a wet gauze. Wet gauze. We can either put it in like a specimen cup or we actually have a culture swab. 
a little help on yeah, that. Yeah, so the two things you could do in that situation is you could kind of break off the swab and you can put it in a culture plate or in a culture cup. You want to just go ahead and dribble just a tiny bit of water in there so that it stays moist because many of these fungi, as I pointed out, like a moist, humid environment, they'll immediately desiccate if it's not that way. So, so certainly in some situations I've seen people just put the swab in and break it off and seal the cup up and send it to the lab and then have the lab inoculate the, the agar for you. The other thing you could do is you could uh, uh, break off the toothbrush. I've seen many, many, our pediatric dermatologist at the University of Colorado, which has a huge PD derm service, you know, they, they actually use a toothbrush and they just throw the toothbrush into a little collection bag and, and the toothbrush goes down to the lab. And then the wet gauze, you could also just kind of rub, but you have to rub kind of aggressively. The last thing, the, the probably sine qua non, the probably best test is the hair pull. But I can understand why people are, are, are kind of reluctant to pull. Uh, to, it doesn't endear you to the patient, let's just say that, uh, to yank 12 or 15 of their hairs out of their scalp. So uh, the, the hair pull, you could just put that directly into the, to the bag. The most important thing is not to let it become desiccated because that will kill your fungi before they have a chance to grow. And then not to be satisfied with a very, very superficial rolling of the swab because you'll probably get staph as a result and you'll miss the deep-seated fungal infection. So if you're going to do the rubbing or anything else, you've got to do it kind of aggressively. That's probably the best advice I could give you. Hi. In the interest of just seeing more self-pay patients now and, and just trying to help folks out with cost, do you ever use vinegar? And if so, white vinegar? adjunctive. Mm -hmm. Sure. Yeah. White, white vinegar has all kinds of amazing medicinal properties. It actually is fungistatic. And where I actually use white vinegar is usually vinegar soaks after I take a nail off for fungus. So the other thing that will also have antifungal properties is, is bleach. Even though we talk about bleach baths for, for staff and things like that, and that's a whole other lecture that you guys are probably having. Um, but uh, bleach will actually kill fungus as well, and so a very dilute, very dilute, you want to make sure it's dilute, uh, bleach bath will also. So where I usually use that in my own practice is a person who I've debrided their nail for fungus, and I want to make sure that while the nail sets up shop and grows again, I don't have any problems. And so bleach baths will, will, will help in that regard, just making a very dilute tub of of bleach or, or vinegar and soaking your foot in there. Thank you. I think that's a great idea. Another um, fungus question for culture. Um, does it matter what the colony looks like or is it just that it turns the media red? Does it matter in terms of... Yeah, you, you know, if you... Oh, the colony? Yeah, the colony Oh, yeah, yeah. Itself. So, I'm sorry, I'm deaf in one ear, so sometimes it's hard for me. To, I'm deaf in this ear, so that's why I'm leaning in like this on everything. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so, so the colony growth does help and in fact, I give a whole talk to the medical students. I actually do the fungal lecture, which really annoys the infectious disease doctors. I actually do the fungal education for our own medical school. And there are all kinds of things I could teach you about the growth and the reverse color. Some, some, for some species, you look at the reverse of the culture plate, and you see red, for example, and you know that it's tinea rubrum, or I'm sorry, trichophyton rubrum or anything, T. rubrum. Um, so there's all kinds of things, and, and there's different words to describe colonies like lacto, laculose or or which means woolly. There's all kinds of different growth patterns, but those are really uh, a problem of, 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 of mycologists for the lab. And, and you have to do it in medical school and then you immediately forget it. So, um, but, but for the DTM, it's just simply red or not red. So it, I can, if it turns the media red, we can treat. We don't have to care what the colony looks like. No. Good, no. thank you. No, well, if it's red, it's a dramatophyte. What is your tolerance for elevation of liver enzymes on lamicell? 
when would you stop treatment of Lamisil? How high would you oh, allow for, that to for, go? We're talking about tinnicapitis? Mm -hmm. Or onychomycosis. So also. for tinnicapitis, I treat for four weeks, and then I'll often reculture. And, and if the culture is negative, which it generally is, four weeks is a fairly considerable dose uh, of terbenafin for, for uh, tinnicapitis. If the culture is negative, then they're done. If the culture comes back positive, then, then, they can, then I continue with another four-week course of treatment. I, I'm sorry, I meant when you test the liver enzymes before you start Oh, liver cell, enzymes. How high will you allow them to go on? <coughs> two and a half full. Okay. Two and a half times normal. What's your basic patient education for someone who's interested in limiting spread of like tinea pedis to their family members or if they have nail fungus to reduce recurrences or spread within yeah, the household? So, so back, when, when the, back when the oral medication used to cost $1,200 a course and, and everybody was real restrictive like the VA system and healthcare systems were very restic restrictive, there were some patients that justified treatment and you can imagine who needs their nail fungus treated are people that have multiple episodes of, 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 of cellulitis of the legs, people that have diabetes because people believe that the cracks that are formed in the skin because of the fungal infection allow bacteria to pass and it causes things like erysipelas, which I'm sure somebody will be talking about at this course, erysipelas, which is streptococcal cellulitis. So, so those people definitely justify treating toenail disease. But aside from that, about 10 to 20% of the population, particularly elderly patients, have fungal infection of the nails that's of no consequence at all. And in those patients, you know, I tell them you have a 50-50 chance of having this even after I treat it. A fair number of those people decide not to treat it at all. But I think you do have to be careful in people with diabetes or with multiple episodes of cellulitis of the lower extremities or maybe other conditions that might leave you predisposed, like, like chronic lymphedema or something like that. I think that would be a good situation to treat. But most people will have nail infection their whole life without any consequence. And it's not a big deal with one exception. What can you tell somebody with nail disease to tell them that has episodic episodes of jock itch, what do you tell them? Put their socks on first. Yeah, that's exactly <laughs> right. You're perfect. You're perfect. So, so if people have nail disease and foot disease and they have episodic jock itch, then what you tell them is put your socks on before you put your underwear on in the morning. And that way you're not carrying fungus up from your feet into the jock area. That's, that's the extent of my advice for those situations. All right, I cleared out all your questions. The floor is yours. Thanks so much.